Hustle. This is your host, Benjamin Sklar, and I'm excited to have my friend Brian Adams on the podcast. How you doing, Brian? I'm doing well, man. Spring has sprung down here in Nashville, and the world is opening back up, and I'm feeling good today, so I'm excited. Thank you for having me on. Of course. So let's kick it off. Please tell us about your background, who you are, and what you're working on today. Absolutely. So I'm a native New Yorker, like yourself. Um, grew up in upstate, went to college in Connecticut powerhouse athletic school of wesleyan university you may have heard of it um and then met my wife up in school went to law school so like you uh attorney and um moved to nashville about 15 years ago so my wife is from uh this part of the world and her family has a single family office and so when i joined the family um, I got exposure to some of the investments we were making through various sponsors and, and funds and GPs and really became enamored with the business and then connected with my business partner who has now been with me for 11 years, also a New Yorker who married a Nashville girl. And we can get into specifics, but we are syndicators. So we raise capital on a deal by deal basis from a network of high net worth individuals, family offices, boutique wealth management firms, all accredited investors, but non-institutional LPs. And what we do is pretty straightforward. We, we do three things. We give people access to direct co-investment opportunities, try to provide a double digit cash on cash yield that we distribute monthly and give people all the benefits that come from direct real estate ownership from a tax perspective. Fascinating. So what would you recommend someone who wants to get into syndication? How should they start? What, they, what should they know? Yeah, so it, it's a great business. We actually started initially raising small blind pool commingled funds. So we raised three small funds, and then it was interesting. We started um, affording our fund investors direct co investment on a deal by deal kind of sidecar setups. And that was so popular. And they started bringing in their friends and family. We realized we're in the wrong business. We should just be syndicators and not fund managers. So five, six years ago, we, we pivoted towards purely doing direct deal by deal. And, you know, we talked about this at length over the phone a couple of times, kind of getting into the business. Um, I, I would really start from a sales and marketing perspective because it's such a capital intensive business. Raising the capital can be a real challenge for people who are first time entrepreneurs or sponsors. So it's really important, and you've done a great job of this, having that really good network in place, understanding exactly what your logical investor base wants and understanding what their problems are and then providing a product or a solution set in the form of real estate that solves those problems. I think that's probably the best way to start. It certainly wasn't the way I did it, but looking back on it, I would reverse engineer it. Interesting. So if you could have gone back, would, would you have started in sales and marketing? Yeah. I mean, I think instead of going to law school, no offense, but we talked about this too, but you know, as, as much fun as it was, um, I think, you know, given my, given what I'm good at, what I enjoy, my skill set, my natural um, tendencies, I should have been doing some kind of biz dev sales marketing role within a financial services group. And for any, uh, this is advice I give to any young person looking to get into the, into the business world if you can figure out a role or a place where you're taking these kind of large complex ideas, distilling them down into really tight, cogent bullet points, and then having other people give their resources, their time and their money in return for that product offering that you're able to explain to them, that's a skill set that you can apply to almost anywhere. 
I like that. So tell me about what markets you're interested in today. It seems like everybody's leaving New York and going to Miami, at least on the West Coast. So how are you approaching that? Are you even involved in that? Yeah. So to give people some perspective uh, who are listening, we're based in Nashville, but we're in 14 markets total. And we run about two and a half million square feet, call it roughly $400 million portfolio. And we're in secondary markets. And for us, a secondary market is an MSA or, or a city that has about 500,000 to a million population, but is outside of the traditional gateway markets. So places that we're pretty active in today would be Kansas City, Cincinnati, Richmond. Um, we just closed the deal in Chattanooga today. We just went under contract on something in West Palm Beach. Um, we're looking at a deal in El Paso. So those are the type of markets, right? Growing places in good tax and business friendly locations that are outside of the traditional gateway markets. And Got it. And what asset classes are you focused on right now? So we're commercial. And, and for us, that means anything from office to industrial to flex to medical. We don't do any single family or multifamily. But because we are you know, syndicators and we have flexibility, it really depends on where we see the opportunity but we stick within that commercial space. Mm -hmm. So let's say someone's listening to this and they have an extra hundred grand that they are looking to invest. They're considering putting into Bitcoin. They know they could put it into Robinhood or Fundrise even, but they, they're interested in speaking with you. What would you tell them about why putting their money into your syndication would be a good investment? Sure, so we're not for everybody. We are boutique, right? We, we have a, a very niche um, approach and really to the three things that I mentioned, we're, we're not big IRR hitters. We're not trying to get a big multiple. We are long-term buy and hold. So for us, it's the problem we solve is a lot of high net worth individuals and families, even if they had pretty decent AUM, we're having trouble getting good kind of opportunities to directly co-invest into stable commercial properties that were producing a decent coupon. And oftentimes they had to get access to it through a fund of funds vehicle or through a synthetic proxy like a REIT. And so that problem we solved is, is giving people that yield and that dividend that they couldn't get in the fixed income markets any longer. So I would say, you know, if that's a problem that you're trying to solve for, we may be a good fit. Um, there are certainly some, some drawbacks to who we are and what we do, and we can kind of go through the pros and the cons, but compared with a Fundrise or another group or maybe another alternative, um, this, these are real assets um, and you know, markets that you're familiar with probably that are doing well. And as opposed to um, an allocator or a crowdfunding website, you're going to be speaking directly with me, right? We're the, we're the operator. We're the one sourcing the deal. We're the one running the deal. We're raising all the capital ourselves internally. And you're going to have that kind of relationship and connectivity with me individually. And we provide resources and, and value beyond just the opportunity itself, which we can get into. But that's the value proposition. Mm -hmm. If I gave you $100 million right now, what would you do with it? Yeah, so I would buy up as much industrial flex medical that I could in Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. Interesting. All right. Break that down for me. So demographics are destiny, right? Um, especially in commercial real estate. And when you look back at what's been occurring, even pre pandemic, the millennial generation is the largest working generational cohort in American history. It's roughly 75 million people. And there was for a long time, 
this belief, especially held by Wall Street, that this was a generation that would never get married, have children. They would forever live in Brooklyn, wear skinny jeans, eat avocado toast, live in that three-story walk-up that you probably live in. The reality is with the Great Recession, their family formation phase got pushed back three to five years on average. And so it was delayed, but it was occurring. So as this generational cohort starts entering into a family formation phase, they're making decisions about where they want to live, work, and play based on quality of life, cost of living, access to single family homes, and access to education for their children. And when you do all that together, secondary markets in the Southeast and the Midwest make all the sense in the world. And so we started seeing this play out on the employee side over the last five plus years. And really with COVID, I personally think it's allowed for political cover for a lot of these employers and corporate users to make moves that they've been wanting to make for a long time to go to more business and tax friendly environments. And now they have the justification of, well, we're going to where our employees are already based and they're already moving to. They don't want to come back to California or New York. So when you take a look at this demographic shift occurring, that's where you want to be, right? And that's going to affect the entire continuum of commercial real estate. And on a, on a higher level, if you're trying to look for yield appreciation and all the tax advantages that come with commercial real estate investing, if you look at the market, kind of trading at an all-time high, fixed income giving you nothing, and a lot of these alternatives seemingly in a bubble, I think commercial real estate's a really safe place to park capital long-term right now. You wrote that down very well. What would you say about a multifamily property in New York City if it came to your desk right now and had good numbers? How, what would you think about it? Listen, for commercial real estate, it's all about your risk profile and your time horizon. If your time horizon is 25, 50, or 100 years, you should buy that property all day. New York City real estate is appreciated at a great clip historically for the last 100, 150 years. And I don't think it, I don't see that changing any time as a long enough time horizon. That being said, today, if you're a taxable investor and you, you don't plan on living forever and you need liquidity, buying something at a four cap, it's really challenging. You need to remember markets like New York um, and San Francisco and, and other of these kind of tier one gateway markets, they're really attractive to international investors. And when you're comparing your liquidity needs and your yield needs, with that of a German pension plan that's getting a negative return on their bond portfolio, their cost of capital is much cheaper than yours. And I think that's just a really hard market to compete in as an individual or a family. Very interesting. What's a blind spot that you have? What's something that you are currently making a mistake on right now? Yeah, I make a lot of mistakes every day. <laughs> um, I, I would say a blind spot is even though COVID has afforded me the opportunity to meet so many different people like yourselves over social media and other kind of podcasting and webinars, et cetera, I used to travel a lot. And now I'm not traveling nearly as much. And I think that's changing. I'm, I've got both my vaccine shots. I've been on the road a little bit, but not nearly as much. I needed to spend more time boots on the ground at the assets I own, as well as scouting new properties. And I can't just do it virtually, I need to be there. And so that's something that will change starting this summer. But for the last 12 months, I've really been hindered a little bit there. And um, I think that's something that, that I need to remedy. Got it. What would you think is the most important skill set that a syndicator could have? And, and, and moving forward, the next 20 years from now, 
the leading syndicator in the market who's currently in high school right now, wh who, what's their profile and what are they talented in that's going to get them to that or her to that level? Empathy. Being empathetic to the needs of your logical investor base and solving their problems. Everything else I think kind of takes care of itself and being frankly savvy with social media and tech because that is the future. I think the democratization of access to alternatives is real. It's happening. It's coming. Fractional ownership is occurring across multiple asset classes and product types and it's always going to continue. So somebody who understands what the Robin Hood of commercial real estate will look like in 10 years. I think it's wide open. There's 12.4 million accredited investor households in America today. And right now syndicators like myself, I've got 5,000 people in my distro list. I mean, there's just a huge opportunity there. Mm -hmm. And even the really big crowdfunding websites, their distribution lists are maybe 25,000. So they're barely touching the surface of that opportunity mm -hmm. set. Interesting, I never thought of it like that. How are you continuing to learn right now? What are your sources of knowledge? Who are you looking to as a mentor who's teaching you about this business? Look to guys like you, people who are out there grinding and working. Um, that's been the really cool thing about COVID is it's allowed me the time and the ability to learn from other syndicators, learn from other GPs. I've, becoming, I've become a total nerd about sales and marketing and content creation and, and co-branding and the ability to kind of be a magnet for like-minded investors and other people. And I've been able to grow my business exponentially as opposed to incrementally like I used to. And so I've been spending a lot of my time talking to folks who are in that, I don't want to say crowdfunding, but in that kind of mass affluent marketing and sales world, because I think it's just fascinating. Give me some names, name drop some people who you think are killing it in that space. Oh, man, you're putting me on the spot here. Hunter Thompson is somebody that I respect a lot that's doing some really cool things. Whitney Sewell is somebody who I respect a lot that his podcast just crushes it. Um, and he's worked really hard on it. And then um, uh, uh, Adam uh, Gower, Dr. Gower, who does a lot of pieces about utilizing social media to enhance your sales funnel. Mm -hmm. um, those are people that I, I kind of, I look up to and that I'm trying to learn as much as I can from. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I heard Sam Zell on a, on a podcast or a YouTube video talking about how he, in the next 10 years, he expects far amounts of real estate in the U S market becoming equitized and how it's a huge opportunity. And you just mentioned it a little bit. So do you think that's the opportunity in the market in the future where essentially equitizing real estate by setting up your own REITs and trying to bring product onto the, the secondary market like that? Yeah. I mean, I think um, if you look at, you know, historically Wall Street and these private equity groups, I'll put it this way. If, if, you, if you take a look back historically over the last 10 years, 85% of all of the institutional LP money that has been raised for commercial real estate has gone to five fund managers. Wow. So Wall Street and these publicly traded private equity groups, which I still don't understand how that's possible, have created a moat around these private equity and alternative assets and investment vehicles, and they've done really well. 
what you're seeing now is that that moat that they've created is is being um, done away with by things like Robinhood, things like Realty Mogul, CrowdStreet, and I think the rise of the retail investor is real, and we will continue to see people who you know are distrustful of the public markets, distrustful of Wall Street. They want to go back to owning tangible assets that can provide them with outsized returns. And they're going to basically have the opportunity to do what Wall Street has done over the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. And and I just, I don't see any way that that doesn't occur in some form or fashion. And if we can figure out the liquidity problem through, you know, blockchain or tokenization, I think the whole world opens up. And that's what's really fascinating to me about what's coming down the pipe. If you were to start a real estate conference, who would you want to be as your keynote speakers? And what would be the topics that would be at the event? Oh, man, these are such good questions. Um, who would I want to be as the keynote speaker? Um, gosh, it'd probably be somebody in the kind of crypto blockchain tokenization space just because it's it's taking over everything um so i don't know who that person would be maybe pomp or um the mooch uh <laughs> somebody like that i think um and then i don't know i'd have to think through who else i'd want on the roster I, w- I want to mention something about that so it seems like you see the future opportunity being the tokenization of real estate, breaking down real estate into the blockchain world. Is that, am I right? Is that what you're, you're yeah, seeing? Yeah, I think fractional, fractionalization ownership um, across the mass affluent. And I think you're going to see the, you're going to see the accredited investor status be continued to be diluted and affording more and more people opportunity to invest within these type of, of alternative assets, hundred percent. And I think it's all going digital. So how can you position yourself to take advantage of that? If you, if you are already seeing that that's the future 10 years from now today, what can you do about it now that you're not doing? Yeah, I think the, so it's a great question. I think the first step is solving this liquidity problem, the secondary market liquidity issue, which is the biggest, in my opinion, hurdle to everyday investors participating in private equity, real estate investing, because, you know, REITs were supposed to do that. They were supposed to be this opportunity to get access to direct real estate, but for the quote unquote, every man retail investor. The, the problem is they're poor synthetic and they're so correlated to the overall markets that they don't achieve the same, um, the same goals. And then the tax treatment is totally different. So the first step is to solve the secondary market liquidity problem. And I've talked to a couple of people, I'm not smart enough but I do think somebody's going to win that war and be kind of a clearinghouse for a lot of these type of opportunities and investments. And I think that's the first step. And then past that, you get into kind of the blockchain tokenization aspect of it. I'm going to have to listen to this podcast again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's a couple of people that are doing some really cool things and I want to do some co-branding content with them or have them on my podcast. But I mean, I think, you know, the liquidity issue is the, is the biggest problem. Um, Also about your podcast. Yeah, so it's called Colloquium, which is um, a reference to my days at Westland. And, um, you know, I have, it's long form. So I have people from all kind of walks of life on there. 
to talk for 30, 45 minutes and it's fun. I have a good time with it. We need to get you on. How many podcasts are you doing per week? As a guest or a host? As a host. Uh, just one a week. We would drop one a week. Yeah. That's great. I need to get more consistent. What's motivating you to create more content? Um, now that I've got more time on my hands because I don't travel as much, um, I've realized that by creating all this content, it's, it's a little obnoxious, right? Because it seems like I'm everywhere with LinkedIn and webinars and podcasts and blog pieces and the YouTube channel. But what I've realized is from an investor standpoint, if I keep doing that, telling people my story, telling people what we do, telling people the problems we solve, they can very easily choose whether or not they want to participate. So instead of me having to hard pitch somebody, take them to that steak dinner where it's like two hours of painful conversation, in 10 or 15 minutes, you can really figure out what I believe in, my style, my approach, my background, my story, the deals, et cetera, and you can opt in. And it's just a much easier way to attract other like-minded people that ultimately, you know, hopefully will, will be investors. And I've just kind of, I've drank the Kool-Aid, like I'm all in on it. And it doesn't take that much work or effort. And that's kind of the first thing. The second thing is I'm an inveterate networker. I love like, I mean, you've, you've been the, on the other end of it. Like I'll just introduce people and make referrals. I kind of almost to an obnoxious amount, but doing podcasting and, and webinars and co-branded content, it's a great excuse to just get in touch with people that otherwise might ignore me. Mm -hmm. Like, Hey, you want to come on my show and talk about your book or, Hey, I saw you're doing this deal. This looks really cool. I want to learn about it. Can I put you out to my 15,000 connections on LinkedIn and then my distribution list and maybe cross pollinate our networks. It's just a cool way to talk to people without it being like a hard sales call. Mm -hmm. I, I think you're doing a great job. I, you really are. Uh, when I think about the people that I've followed over the last few years, starting with Tony mm -hmm. Robbins, Gary V, Lewis House, Grant Cardone, Brandon Bruchard, and the list goes on. I love these people because I feel like I know them. I've never even met them, yeah. but I, I, I know who they are from their storytelling. And I feel like if you and I and others out there who have their own podcasts and are creating content are continuing to create storytelling content, your potential customers are going to relate with you before they even shake your hand and look you eye to eye. Yeah. And so it's invaluable. Yeah. It's, it's just a better way to do business. And I, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't always think so. It took COVID to make me realize it, but I'm, I'm all in. Yeah. So. You're doing a great job. So before I let you, before I let you go, let's do a quick fire round. Let's do it. What's your favorite book? My favorite book of all time. My favorite book of all time. Um, I would have to go with um, The Old Man in the Sea. Mm, I read that in one sitting. <laughs> and you know, P P PBS has just launched that new Hemingway documentary. It's, it's super cool. I'll check it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. have to. What's the, your biggest lesson from your experience in real estate? Um, you have to realize that when you're a syndicator or a fund manager or whatever it is that you're doing, if you're on the principal side, there are two distinct risks. There are the, the deals themselves and the investments, but then there are the fact that you're running and operating a small business that has its own set of risks, its own issues that if you don't pay attention to them and don't give them the proper time and energy and resources, that's a mistake I made early in my career. 
nobody cares how great the deals are, your business will fall apart. And I don't think that's something that sponsors take seriously enough. And I don't think it's something that investors ask enough questions about. And you're referring to the asset management of the business? I'm talking about sales, marketing, reporting, tax, audit, HR, all the things that underpin your ability to go out and make acquisitions. That's what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. you know, they don't necessarily have anything directly to do with the investments themselves, but if you don't put enough time and effort into them, you'll fail. And I think oftentimes in this business as sponsors, people just want to go out and be deal guys. Mm -hmm. And that's fine, but that's not a scalable and repeatable business. And the way that you have lower minimums is your ability to fundraise efficiently. That's what allows people to invest $50,000, $100,000 into a $20 million deal. And so it has to all be working together. And oftentimes people just focus on one aspect of the, of the business, not the other. I like that. So here's my signature question. If there's one thing you could do to improve this world, what would you do and why? There's one thing that I could do to improve this world. What would it be? and why so <laughs> i would have to go with education at a bare minimum universal pre-k universal child care um i think if we supported early childhood education more that we would be able to get out in front of a lot of the other systemic issues that occur later on in life mm -hmm. Well said. Brian, I'm extremely impressed with you, your business. I think you're extremely well-spoken and I'm excited to see where you take this. So thank you for coming on the show for your time and good luck with everything. Thanks, man. Awesome to be on the show. I really appreciate it. Keep it of up. Of course. You too. 